Well, good morning, Brook Hills. It's, it's good to be here with you this morning. If you're a guest here with us today, I want to welcome you. My name is Zach Condi, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. I hope that you all had a good Christmas. I hope that maybe it was restful. Uh, my in-laws got our children a trampoline for Christmas, so there's no rest around our house right now. Uh, maybe never again, it feels like, but it's all good. We have made it here to the last day of the year. I know that many of us are looking forward to 2024, and maybe for different reasons. Uh, for some of us in this room, if we're being honest, maybe 2023 was a really hard year, that it was heavy or painful or that you're just exhausted. And for others of us, maybe 2023 was awesome, and it was an incredible year, and you can't wait to see what 2024 might hold. So I don't mean to quench anyone's excitement this morning, but I want to remind all of us what happened around four years ago at this time. There was all this excitement and hype for this year that was going to be the best year ever. And um, <laughs> if, you, if you're not sure what happened, that was the year 2020. And uh, I'm not going to remind you what happened that year, but it was a challenging year. I heard someone say recently that 2020 was like uh, looking both ways before crossing the street only to get hit by an airplane, right? That's, that's what that year felt like. And so <laughs> I don't mean to, uh, to slap any of us on the wrist this morning for daring to look forward, but I do want to remind all of us of what we're called to look forward to because we don't know what 2024 holds, but we do know who holds 2024. And today in God's word, we're only going to look at one verse that I hope will help establish a framework of joy or an invitation toward joy in the Lord in the year to come. So if you have your Bible, you can grab, uh, turn to Psalm 1611. This is a Psalm of David, and it, it sure seems like David is in trouble when he's writing this Psalm. He's crying out earlier in the Psalm, God preserve me, God don't abandon my soul. So it sure seems like he's in distress. In verse 11, uh, the, the text that we're gonna look at today is the last verse in the psalm where David reaches this glorious conclusion. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this psalm was certainly about David's immediate circumstances when he was contending for his life, but the psalm also goes beyond that moment. The truths in this verse applied to David's entire life. We see him in this posture throughout the Psalms. And these truths are for us as well. We know this not only because God has given us his word and it's profitable for us, but because in the days of the early church, if you look at Acts 2, when Peter preaches the first ever known sermon after Jesus ascended, the first sermon we have written, he begins speaking about Jesus and he says, look what David said about Jesus. And he points to this text that we're looking at today. So the first ever sermon, Peter looked here. So it's for us, this is for the church. And I want us to start out by just thinking about that first line. You make known to me the path of life. The Lord's grace is just all over this verse in more ways than one. And that's the first point I want us to consider today. The Lord's grace. I don't want us to miss the incredible truth that we have a God who is actively at work among his creation and that he moves toward us in a way that we don't deserve, but in a way that shows his love and kindness toward us. Because look at what the first line says, you make known to me the path of life. God makes known this path. God reveals this path. We don't discover it on our own critical thinking skills or a lot of us would be in trouble, right? but God graciously reveals the path of life to us. So how does God do this? 
while God has always been speaking and communicating to his people. We see him speaking the world into being and then speaking to Adam and Eve, and then throughout the Old Testament, he's speaking through his prophets to tell us who he is and what he's like. And the Bible also tells us that God is communicating with us and speaking to us through what he has created, that the created world around us, the created order, actually testifies to the reality of God. As David writes in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So all around us, we see evidence of a creator God. In other words, when we just look at the world around us, our instincts are primed to say, there is a good creator God out there and I need to know him and worship him. Like, if you've ever been watching um, a movie or a TV show and all of a sudden there's a, a subtle shift in the music or a shift in the camera angle and you know something's coming, right? Uh, my wife is amazing at this. She always picks up on those clues and she sees something is coming based on, on the clues we see. And likewise, God has clued us into this truth. Everything around us is pointing toward the reality of him. And more than that, God has given us his word that we might very clearly know who he is and worship him. The whole Bible is leading us to do that, to know God and to worship him. This is the path of life that we're going to be looking at this morning, the path that we're meant to be on, knowing God and worshiping God. So he graciously reveals himself to us, he stirs our hearts through creation, and he clearly reveals himself through his word as we're going to see today. But God does more than just reveal this path, God also invites us down this path. It's one thing for God to just say, well, there's a, a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. And he, he could simply state that truth as I'm stating it here today. And he does very clearly state this truth. In places like Deuteronomy 30, listen to what the word says. See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you love the Lord and walk in his ways, you will live and multiply and be blessed but if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to worship other gods and serve them, you will perish. So God says, I have set before you life and death, a prosperous life of blessing or a dead life that is full of adversity. God reveals both of these paths to us, but he invites us down the path of life. He's not just a God who, who sets things into motion and then steps back to see how they play out. We've all had that moment before, right? That I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna see how this plays out moment. If you're a parent and you have a, I feel like every two-year-old has that moment where they decide it's time that they're gonna go to the top shelf of the fridge and grab the gallon of milk and they're gonna pour a bowl of cereal and you know there is absolutely no way this is gonna go well but you just have to watch it play out, right? You just have to see what happens. But God's not like that. He's not passive with us just watching to see what will happen but he's actively inviting us to join him on the path of life. We see this clearly throughout scripture in places like Isaiah 55, where God speaks through Isaiah the prophet. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, drink and be satisfied. What an incredible invitation, come to the waters. God invites us with all of our weariness to come and be satisfied. God knows we're thirsting and he says, you don't have to be thirsty. You can come to the waters. I'll show you the path. It's like David writes in Psalm 23, that God is like a shepherd leading his sheep. And he says, he leads us beside still waters where we can be refreshed. So come to the waters. The invitation is there to drink and be satisfied. 
So God does not just reveal this path of life to us, but he invites us down this path. His posture towards us is graciously welcoming. But God doesn't stop there. Hundreds of years after speaking these words, come to the waters through Isaiah, God would magnify his invitation in the most profound way possible. In John chapter four, Jesus is speaking with a woman who is thirsty. And not just the, I need a sip of water thirst, but she is thirsting for life. And Jesus tells her, he says, well, there's some well water here and you can drink it and it's fine. But those who drink of this water will be thirsty again. It cannot satisfy you in the way you need to be satisfied. But then he tells her, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. He tells her, he says, you want to be on the path of life? You want your thirst satisfied, truly satisfied? Jesus says, just come to me. The invitation is there. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I don't know what circumstances 2024 holds for any of us, but I know there's an invitation to find rest and joy and peace and hope in the Lord. But it's only found on this path of life, which God has revealed to us, which he has invited us down. And as we see next, God provides the means for us to walk down this path. So, so far this morning, if you're hearing me talk about this path and you're thinking, I don't really see it, well, God makes it very clear for us. He tells us that the path of life is found through his son, Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the way. I am the path of life. You see, there's a difference between merely living and being truly alive. And Jesus is the path to true life. The reason that we're not all on this path to true life is, is like we saw in Deuteronomy 30, right? there. There's a path of life and a path of death. And the reason we're not all on the path of life is because we have turned away from God. God said, stay on this path and you will have life. But we rebelled and turned away. And our rebellion against God is called sin. And the Bible clearly tells us that sin leads to death. Death in this life and death in the life to come. As Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, you were alive, but you were not really living in the fullest sense. You were dead at the same time, separated from God. But the climax of Ephesians 2 goes on to say, but God. You were dead, but God. You were not on the path of life, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. So God reveals, God invites, and God provides the means for us to be on the path of life through his son, Jesus Christ. Our sin against God created a debt we could not pay, but God provided a way. There's nothing we could do, but God did all the work, and that is the Lord's grace. So before we move any further, I, I want to put that question in front of each of us. Have you trusted in Christ for salvation as your only hope to be made right with God and to be on this path of life? Because to walk on this path is to live in the fullest sense. Only in Christ do we have true life. Only in Christ will we have the joy and pleasures that are promised in the rest of this verse. So, the second and third lines of this psalm form a type of poetic parallelism. I know that's a mouthful, poetic parallelism. 
where the second and, second and third lines, they, they say almost the same thing. They run parallel to one another and they support the first line. So because we're on the path of life in line one, we have these incredible truths in lines two and three. And the second line of Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Now the word translated presence here, that's a, that's a great translation as it captures the heart of what David is writing here. But in the Hebrew, this word tr- presence could also be read as face that in the Lord's face, there is fullness of joy. So in the first line, we saw the Lord's grace, and in the second line, we're called to look to the Lord's face. And you know, um, facial recognition technology is really an impressive thing. I remember the first time many years ago where I had had uploaded the picture to social media, and it was like, hey, do you wanna tag your friend Colton in this picture? And I remember just thinking, wow, like how does this know that this is this person that I know? It was just really impressive. I know that technology has come a long way since then, but there's one thing that that technology still can't do, and that is read emotions. Read what's going on behind the face. Because sometimes emotions or or thoughts can be very clear and obvious. We can see sadness and anger or uh, just joy, but other times it can be really hard to tell what's going on behind someone's face, right? We might not know because it's very complex. Uh, my two-year-old son is trying to figure this out. Uh, so when we're watching TV sometimes and he sees someone make a face that he doesn't like, he'll start shouting, bad guy, bad guy, that's a bad guy. And we're like, no, buddy, that's actually the hero of the show. Um, so he's not very good at this. But the idea here is that looking upon God's face, there will be no confusion as to whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. That when we look God in the face, when we see him clearly for who he is and all of his glory, that in his face we would see love and compassion and tenderness and grace and kindness and that we would be overjoyed by his goodness, that everything in us would be shouting, good guy, he's a good guy. Just listen to how the Lord introduces himself over and over again throughout scripture. This is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So when we look upon his face, we see clearly who he is and what he's like, and this leads to joy. And the world promises us this kind of joy, but only God can deliver it. Many of us in this room know that the promises of this world are empty. You could ask many of the world's wealthiest celebrities and business people, and they could tell you there is not always a correlation between success and happiness. Some of us in this room know that having a wonderful home or incredible children or a great career, those are all good things that we should be thankful for, but they cannot satisfy our greatest needs. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller said, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. The created things not only give us a lesser joy, but they eventually end up causing pain, or they lead us to emptiness. But Jesus says in John 10:10, I have come that you may have fullness of life. Not emptiness, but abundant life. And this abundant life is wrapped up in God's character and his promises and who he is and what he's done. When we look upon his face and take it in, that we would see all of that. And this will, this will change our entire worldview. It will change the way we see our circumstances. Because even when we don't understand what's happening, we know we can trust God. Because we've seen it in his face. We know he's trustworthy. 
there's no one more trustworthy than God. And in his presence, when we look to him, we can have fullness of joy. And this joy is not counterfeit, but the real stuff. There's your big theological word for the day, the real stuff, right? My seminary professors will be proud of that one. Many of us uh, over the past week might have had a moment uh, where you were gathered around the Christmas tree opening presents. And maybe this didn't happen in your setting. Hopefully it didn't. But I'm sure we've all seen this moment before where someone, usually a child, gets a bad present. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's just bad. And, and they don't want it and they don't even know what to do with it. And everyone who's aware of this moment sort of freezes in awkwardness like, oh gosh, what's going to happen here? And in that moment... If the child has been trained really well by mom and dad, and maybe threatened a little bit, then what do they do? They act happy about it, right? They, they act like they really want the thing. If they haven't been well trained, then all bets are off. But you know what I'm talking about. They, they pretend to be happy. They don't want the gift, um, so there's this fake happiness. The gift should produce joy, but it just doesn't. And, and I think sometimes we're inclined to believe that the joy that comes from being in the presence of God is like that bad gift. We know it's supposed to produce joy, but deep down we're pretty sure it's not going to satisfy us. That we can pretend to be happy about it, but that this gift from God can't match the happiness that comes from other pursuits. Because what, what I really need to be happy is not joy from God, but I need a spouse, I need a life partner or I need a new career, or I need radically different circumstances across the board. Or what I really want to be happy is a win at four o'clock tomorrow, right? Or for some of you in this room, maybe a loss at four o'clock tomorrow. Or I, I really just want the thrill that comes from my favorite hobby, and that's, you know, that's separate from God. I've got God over here, but then here are all the tangible things that I need and want to make me happy. And if you're telling me I can't look to those things, but I have to look to the Lord, then I'll be like a child with a, a dissatisfying present. It's not what I want. But friends, I want to remind you this morning from God's word, not my words, but his word, in his presence there is fullness of joy. Not 50% joy, not 99% joy, and 1% wishing there was something more, but fullness of joy. Our hearts were created to know him and worship him. And there is a joy found in knowing him that no created thing could ever match. As our brother J.I. Packer said, knowing God is a relationship created to thrill a man's heart. The one who created us, he knows how we tick, he knows how we're wired. In him is the best and truest joy possible. However, this text today is not suggesting that we will only have joy and never have sorrow. Jesus promised that we would have trouble. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows who wept and felt great anguish. David knew trouble all too well when he penned this psalm and many others under great distress. And I know some of you in this room are walking through deep and painful seasons right now where joy feels distant. And it's okay if that's where you are. Uh, Revelation 21 promises that one day there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. On that day, when we are with the Father in heaven, our joy will be complete. Until then, our joy will often be darkened by the pains of this world. But God is right there with us in the midst of our suffering. He not only invites us, but pursues us. His word tells us that he is near to the brokenhearted. God comes near when our joy is distant and invites us to cling to hope. 
Hope because of who he is and what he's promised. Hope because we see in God's word that pain and loss is not the final verdict for those who are in Christ. And hope because as God's word tells us over and over again, God is a refuge amidst our troubles. That his mercies are new every morning. That he will comfort us even amidst affliction. That we can come to have peace even when we don't understand that we can build our lives on a foundation that will not crumble under the distress of the fiercest storms. As Tim Keller put it, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, but tasting the coming joy. When joy feels distant, hope is not lost. God remains near, and he will guide our feet on the path back toward joy in him. Because we have to remember this. This joy comes from God's presence. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. If joy is to be rediscovered, this is where it will be found. We can't merely know God, but we must be present with him. Secondhand knowledge won't suffice. You know, there's this, uh, there's this comedian that Danielle and I like, and his name is Nate Bargatze, and he's coming to Birmingham in May, and we're pretty excited about this. In fact, I was really excited on Christmas morning because I had gotten Danielle and I tickets to go see him, only to find out that Danielle had also gotten the two of us tickets to go see him. So we have a lot of Nate Bargatze tickets at our house right now. But I can tell you all about Nate. I can tell you what he's like. I can tell you what kind of jokes he tells. I can even tell you some of his jokes, and they would not be very funny. But I, I could write thousands of words trying to paint a picture of this guy and what he's like. But if you want to find out for yourself if he's funny, what should you do? You spend time with him, right? You, you look him up on YouTube. You come to his show in May. You spend time getting to know him. You need the firsthand experience to figure out what he's like. And David is reminding us here that joy is found in God's presence. It's found in actually knowing him personally. So spend time reading his word and being reminded of his promises. Spend time praying and knowing that he immediately hears and responds. Spend time listening to Christian music and reading Christian books and being in Christian community where you can learn about God. Back when I worked in, in Christian camp ministry, I would always hear stories of students who came to camp and they felt this incredible camp high or this spiritual high, this incredible sense of connection to God that week. They had never felt that close to God before and it was life-changing for them. But then they would go back home and it would feel different and they wondered why. But what those students felt, it's not something fake that was manufactured by that camp setting. The intimacy with God they felt is what happens when you wake up each morning and you study God's word and you sit under godly teaching and you participate in worship and you structure your whole day around the word of God. Because in his presence, there's fullness of joy. And students would get a glimpse of that. They would taste and see that the Lord is good, but then they would go home and neglect to spend time with him and wonder why it felt different. But when we look upon God's face and see his character, when we get a sense of who he really is, and when we spend time with him, we will delight in his goodness. So we see the Lord's grace, right? He graciously reveals a path of life and invites us to walk down on it through his son, Jesus Christ. In the second line, we're called to look to the Lord's face, that in his face, in his presence, we'll find fullness of joy, deep-seated joy to endure whatever the year ahead throws at us. And lastly, I want to invite us to our proper place. The third line of this verse tells us that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the first thing that jumps out is that phrase, at his right hand. Often in scripture, when we hear the phrase God's right hand, it's, it's talking about Jesus, 
Uh, in Luke twenty two sixty nine, he writes, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So that's Jesus. Acts 2.33, the sermon that Peter preached in Pentecost, he said, Jesus being exalted at the right hand of God. So it's often about Christ. But here in Psalm 16.11, we see the same phrase at his right hand, but it's actually talking about us. Because remember, uh, these two lines are parallels. They, being in God's presence in line two, which refers to us, it's the same idea of being at his right hand in line three. So it's us at his right hand. And that leads to our next point. We're invited to the place of honor based on the merit of Christ. You see, the right hand of the king is a place of honor. You think about that king sitting at a wonderful dinner feast at this long table, and we all know who's going to be seated at the head of the table, right? That's, that's the king's seat. But the question is, who would be seated in that seat closest to him, right? Who would be high enough in the king's favor to have that seat, and the shocking good news of the gospel is that it's us. We who have rebelled against God and failed to uphold his law, but he extends the invitation to be at his right hand. Not in the same exalted seat as Christ, but in a seat of intimacy and friendship. And I, I wonder how many of us this morning are inwardly shaking our heads no when we hear this. That maybe some of us in this room have a seat at God's right hand, but I, but I, I don't have that seat. You're thinking, Zach, if you knew me and my sin history and, and what I've done and what my heart is like, you'll know that I don't have a place there. And you're right that I, I don't know your sin history. I don't know what your heart is like in your, in your worst moments. But I do know that if you have trusted in Christ, all of your sins are completely forgiven and that you stand before God righteous, not based on your merit, but on the merit of Christ. And if we are in Christ on the path of life, our proper place is to be at his right hand, in his presence, enjoying the Lord's pleasures. And he will purify and magnify our good pleasures. God created a world for us to enjoy and to delight in, and there are so many pleasures available to us. I don't want to imply this morning that the only options available for Christian are Bible reading, prayer, and worship. Those are all good things. I would recommend you to build your life around those things. God will be glorified when you enjoy those things. But there are so many other good pleasures available to us. If you've ever read the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he kind of imagines this conversation between demons and kind of the tactics that they might use to keep people from knowing and worshiping God. And at one point, one of the demons acknowledges with such frustration that God has given us so many pleasures. And he says this to the other demon. He says, there are things for humans to do all day long without God's minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. There are so many good things created by God for our pleasure. But we've all seen how good things can be distorted and twisted by sin. You can ruin your life by, by taking God's good gifts and abusing them. Our hearts are prone to idolatry, to worship the created rather than the creator. But when we put these pleasures in their proper place, when we recognize they can't fill our heart's great longing, but that they're a gift from God to be enjoyed, we'll be free to enjoy them without getting entangled in them. We can actually enjoy these pleasures in their fullest sense when we're not enslaved to them. So we can enjoy the good gift of college football, amen, without being dangerously obsessed by it. We can enjoy social media without being consumed by it. 
We can enjoy good and pleasurable hobbies without them becoming addictions and distractions and without feeling guilt or shame over them. These pleasures must be viewed as a gift from God and not something to be pursued outside of God. That's when we get into trouble. But the good news is these pleasures are forevermore because they have eternity in view. We're invited to enjoy God and his good pleasures in this lifetime as well as in the life to come. And we can't fathom what those eternal pleasures will look like. I love what pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards said in one of his first ever sermons. He was preaching about Christian happiness. He's talking about the indescribable happiness of heaven, how we just can't describe it. And he basically said that when we try to describe the greatness of heaven, even with the best possible words that we can come up with, we're only going to darken it by comparison. Our attempts to describe eternity are only going to muddy the waters of how great it will be. We can't fathom how good those pleasures will be, but they'll be good. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. So we look forward to those eternal pleasures, but we can begin tasting the first fruits of them today. And I love that word pleasure because it evokes the idea of enjoyment and gladness and happiness, right? We Christians should be a happy people, but that's not always the reputation that we have today. Uh, We're sometimes known as grumpy people or people who have a long list of, no, 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 you can't do that. That's kind of our reputation, but, but friends, listen, I want you to hear this clearly this morning. The Bible is not afraid to hold together the tension that we're called to surrender to Christ, and at the same time, we will find fullness of life in doing so. This is the great wonder of the Christian and part of our compelling witness to the world. The world sees in us a people who have denied ourselves and given up the pursuit of personal gain. That we have laid down the American dream and we have taken up our crosses and the world assumes this must be a loss. But we know it is a gain. In Christ, we have actually found true life, joy and pleasures now and a promise to enjoy life with God forever. So as we close in the next few minutes, this is my invitation to you today, Brook Hills. As we look ahead toward 2024, none of us knows what it holds. For you or for me, there might be unfathomable tragedy lurking around the corner. And some of you feel like you're already there. You know some of what 2024 holds and it's painful to think about. But David, through this psalm, is inviting us to remember that the path of life through Christ leads us to joy and pleasures in God's presence. In seasons of pain, or seasons of prosperity, God is present with us. He moves toward us. He does the heavy lifting. He reaches out to sinners, to sufferers, to saints, and he invites us to come to the waters because we're all searching for joy and refreshment and rest. And so I want to close with this quote from Jonathan Edwards from that same sermon I mentioned earlier about man's search for happiness, where he talks about how we're all desperately searching for this. I think it is so spot on. It describes mankind really well. Listen to what he says. He says, there is no man upon earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness, and it appears abundantly by their so vigorously trying all manner of ways to find it. They try all false paths. They will spend and be spent, labor all their lifetime, endanger their lives, will pass over mountains and valleys, go through fire and water, seeking for happiness amongst vanities, and are always disappointed although the true way to happiness lies right before them, and they might easily step into it and walk in it and be brought into as great a happiness as they desire and greater than they can conceive of, yet they will not enter into it. 
Friends, let's enter into it. Step toward God in 2024. Come to Christ on his path of life. Open your Bible and sit in his presence. Lean into prayer and look to the Lord's face. Maybe those are the small steps we all need to take this year. Bible reading and prayer. Not cliche New Year's resolutions, but steps toward true joy. He is good, he is trustworthy, and he invites us to come to the waters and be satisfied in his presence. So I pray that all of us would know his joy and pleasures in 2024.